0: Acts chapter 20, and beginning to read at verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Amen. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We bow our hearts before it, and we pray that uh, as I give an exposition, I would be faithful to uh, speak your word in the context of your grace in this chapter, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you may see <clears throat>
1: well,
0: as it nears the end of two thousand eight, I think it would be good for us to do some self evaluation this morning, but I don't want it to be the kind where you beat up on yourself, you come away, dragging your tail between your legs. Uh, I really want it to be the kind of self evaluation where you say. Yes, God's grace has been with me during this past year. I see some areas in which I could grow. I want to move forward and uh, to be inspired to grow in this way. So I've titled the sermon, Constructive Self-Evaluation. How we view God and the world and ourselves makes a huge difference on whether we live by faith or we live constantly uh, discouraged. There was a, an interesting sign at a at an employment agency in Tucson, Arizona that was actually plastered on the top of a full-length mirror. And it said, would you hire this person? And I thought it was a rather clever uh, sign because uh, people have a tendency to blame everyone out there for why they're not a success. You know, they blame the boss for not having seen their qualities or a fellow employee for cheating or bad luck or whatever it may be. But if they would take the time to look at themselves and see if there are any changes that could could happen or ask themselves, would I respond any differently to the person that I see in that mirror? Are there things that I could change? Now, there is a danger anytime we engage in self-evaluation, and there is a danger as well in preaching on just a little tiny section of Paul's sermon, because Paul had a whole context. He wanted his people to hear, right? And if we yank the context, uh, uh, yank this little section out of its context, uh, we could miss the positive that Paul frames it in. And so I'm going to be giving hinters at the context as we go through this because I do not want you to be discouraged. Dr. Colbert gave a long list of ways that our perceptions tend to sabotage the very success that we desire. I'm not going to go through all of his, I'll just give you a few. But he speaks of overgeneralizations that if one or two or three things go wrong, people assume everything's going to go wrong uh, with me. And just imagine if Paul had taken that attitude. Uh, where would he be? He would certainly not be striving the way he constantly did all the way through the book. He did not overgeneralize from some of the things that happened to everything. A second sabotaging perception is a negative what he calls a negative mental filter, by which he means something like this. A person has just received a half hour of praise for a job well done, and the the job he's been working on, but he comes away absolutely discouraged because there's one little area that was pointed out that he could improve on. And so his mind filters out all of the praise and all he can focus on, oh, I was such a disappointment to my boss. You know, the boss doesn't like me. He pointed out this, this bad thing in, in, my, in my life. Now, some of you have a tendency to do this with my sermons. You know, <laughs> you'll hear some areas that you have to grow in and you forget about all of the incredible things God's done in your life. You're so focused in on this little area that you have failed on that uh, you just become depressed and very discouraged. I don't want you to do that this morning. A third sabotaging perception is called disqualifying the positive. And this is where a person thinks that he is utterly unworthy of any praise. Utterly unworthy. And he discounts any praise that people give to him. He kind of just deflects that praise. He's so focused in on his sins that he, he doesn't see anything that God has been doing within him. And we know if you're a believer, God has begun a good work in you. He's continued a good work. There's plenty in your life uh, for which uh, people can praise you. Now, it's true. Paul said he was a sinner. In fact, he called himself the chief of sinners, didn't he? And yet he did not discount the great amount of good that God had been working in his life. Now, people sometimes say, well, it's all of God's grace, so I can't take any praise. A couple of thoughts you ought to think about when when you're you're thinking that way. First of all, even though uh, sanctification is a hundred percent the work of God, it's also a hundred percent our work. We have to work out what God has worked in. And if there was nothing for which you were praiseworthy, then Paul's in big trouble because he is constantly engaging in praise of the congregations that he is writing to. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't point out errors. It doesn't mean he didn't correct them. He obviously corrects them. But there was something very legitimate in their lives to praise. And so Paul is not really friendly to the false humility that says, oh, I can't take any praise. No. Think about all the praise that Paul gives in the, even to the church of, of Corinth and you realize there must be something in these people that is praiseworthy. And I, th- I would just want you to think about that a little bit. We have this tendency to just deflect all praise. Um, a fourth sabotaging perception is called jumping to com- conclusions these are people who are not even going to try because they've already predicted the worst possible outcome. They, they just know it's going to fail before they have even tried doing this. They will read a text like we have just read and they will say, look at all of the enemies that Paul had. Look at all of the people arrayed against him and they'll conclude that the enemy is going to triumph against the church. Not that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. It'll be the exact opposite fifth sabotaging perception he calls the mind reader, who concludes that everybody he talks with has a negative opinion of them. And there isn't anything objective that they can base that upon. Uh, They just assume this person thinks poorly of them. And uh, as a result they have a real difficult time entering into deep relationships with others. They are not believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. Now, I'm not a friend of Freud. In fact, I'm a mortal enemy of Freud and Freudianism. But I think there is one area that he's correct on, that whole thing of projection, where people sometimes will project their attitudes upon others. They will assume others are thinking of them just as negatively as they tend to think of everybody else. And this is something that deals a death blow to um, you know, self-evaluation. Others are magnifiers. They exaggerate the catastrophic impact of some goof-up that they have made in the past. And there's no doubt about it. It was a major goof-up. I had a hang-up on this uh, in the past. And, and they think, I can't forgive myself. How in the world could anybody else forgive me? I can never get over this Problem. It's always going to be with me, and people will not accept me for for who I am. Now, just imagine the Apostle Paul. He had killed quite a few people, and imagine if he had this thing. It would where you magnify it so much that it overshadows all of your life. If he went from congregation to congregation, I'm sure he ran across widows he had killed their husbands, or orphans he had killed their parents. And it would have been very easy for Paul to just say, I can't live with this. I can't deal with this. His problem is so magnified in his mind that he cannot move forward. Some of you have had some major goof-ups in your life, and they're so overwhelming, it just clouds your perception of everything. It's a sabotaging uh, uh, attitude. Others are feeling wallowers. Uh, That's not the label he gives to it, but... I didn't understand his label. I understood his description. Um, Feeling wallowers are people who assume that their feelings are good gauges of reality. They don't stop to think, maybe I'm feeling terrible because I didn't get a good sleep last night. Now, they automatically assume that uh, uh, everything is going wrong because they feel bad inside. And um, uh, as a result, uh, they have a negative uh, outlook on life. Uh, rarely are your feelings an accurate gauge of life. Now, you can't ignore your feelings, but neither should your feelings be a firm conclusion for you. Okay, some people blame themselves for everybody else's problems, and I have seen this over and over again. Daddy left mommy because I was bad, and they bear the burden of this, uh, this divorce, you know, that the... As my, my fault that mommy and daddy have, have split up, or some other issue like that. Others perceive the need to be liked as being so important that they will sacrifice everything, including the truth, so that other people will like them. Uh, let me tell you something. This passage is one of many in the New Testament that indicates not everybody's going to like you, and you just need to get over it, you know, and not worry about that. In fact, worrying is probably worrying about things you have no control over is probably the biggest uh, thing that sabotages a a, a proper uh, self evaluation and so if you can promise this morning to look at this passage through the lens of the cross, we can proceed. Can you agree to that this morning uh we're We're not going to uh, try to look at this out of context, and uh, I can't preach on all of Paul's sermon, otherwise his, his sermon's, a, you know, just read the sermon and we'll go home. Uh, we we want to tear it apart and take a look at what Paul was doing here. Now, there are six ways in which he had these elders look inward and evaluate themselves. The first was to see if they were faithful to warn. Do we care for the well-being of other people enough to warn them about danger? Verse 26 says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, in one sense, that's kind of a negative way to start, uh, because what he's saying here, he's implying if he didn't do something, he would be guilty. He's implying these people are headed toward uh, toward hellfire. They're headed toward death, and that's exactly accurate. But what Paul wants these elders to realize is you've got an incredible privilege and a glory of being used by God to rescue people. He speaks of his innocence because he was a rescue mission on two feet. When he saw people walking over a cliff, he was there to warn, hey, there's a cliff there, don't be going over that cliff, it's dangerous over there. And so it's a very straightforward, simple message, and yet people immediately focus on the wrong thing. The focus of many people is, yeah, but what if these people don't want me to warn them about going over the cliff? They might hate me, they might not like me. Now, what's the focus on this person who's a nervous willy, you know, about telling anybody about the dangers that are out there? His focus is on self, not on the well-being of other people. And what's the emotion that he's feeling? He's feeling fear. He's not uh, operating out of faith. He's operating out of fear. And um, what is the result of this? It's the death of other people. And his attitude is, I don't care. At least I don't care enough to do anything about that, And so when you look at it from that perspective, I think you can see that Paul's warnings are a blessing. They're an incredible blessing in a fallen world. They're words of hope and encouragement, even if other people interpret them totally differently. So the first point of self-evaluation is this. Do you care about a lost world? Do you care about the destiny of fellow sinners? Uh, do you care about dangers that fellow believers face? Do you care about the sheep in your family that God has entrusted to your care? For this next year, I want to be a more caring person. I want to care enough to make a difference. Now, the second thing that we saw is that Paul was faithful to teach. Verse 27 says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul knew that there were people who would hate some of the doctrines that he was teaching, but he taught them anyway. He taught the whole counsel of God. And so this indicates to me that the Scriptures have got to define what is the message of hope, what is the good message that needs to be given, not the world, because the world out there does not want you to be warning them. They're totally blind to the dangers that they're facing, and I think they would probably prefer that you have a Pollyanna message. You know the movie Pollyanna, where finally the minister is convinced he's only going to preach on I don't know how many scriptures was it it wasn't very many scriptures he was going to preach on the positive scriptures and not give uh the the other scriptures out there paul gave the word that was needed his goal was to be faithful not just to be popular a toddler who wants to get into the chemicals is going to think you're 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 being a meanie your your message is not going to be very popular when you say No, you may not get into those chemicals, and if you do, you're going to be disciplined. You know, when your children were young, um, you probably didn't care whether you were popular with your child when you told your daughter, you may not play in the street. It's dangerous out there. You may not touch this hot stove. So what has changed when your child became 15 years old? There are still scriptures that are not going to be popular, you know, with your children. And yet you must give as a faithful parent what is needed, what is in the good and the best interests of that child. Pastors must preach the whole counsel of God. Politicians must give a message that is needed by our culture, not a message that is popular. That's the whole problem with the politicians out there is they're giving a message that's popular, but not a message uh, that is needed. And all message givers stand before God when, they evaluate, when God evaluates their actions. So here's a question you could ask yourself. When you stand in front of a mirror and look at that person there, would you vote for you? Or would you uh, consider your pragmatism, your compromise, your cowardice to speak God's word into situations as saying, you know, that person I see over there is really not worthy of my vote. He's just acting like all of the other politicians act. That's what we need to evaluate ourselves by. Are we interested in giving true biblical solutions to the problems that we face or are we only going to give comfortable solutions? Kind of lick your finger and test which way the wind is blowing. Now, obviously, this chapter applies to us elders, but I want us to apply it to to all of us. Third test, faithful to take heed. Verse 28 Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. What an awesome responsibility it is to be a shepherd. It's a tremendous responsibility. We elders need to evaluate whether we take heed. You fathers are shepherds. You need to evaluate Am I being the kind of shepherd God wants me to be? Now, Paul breaks this down into two parts. First of all, he says, I want you to take heed to yourselves. Do we take care of ourselves? So here you are, you're looking in front of that mirror, and you're wanting to hire somebody who's going to be a good shepherd of your body. And you look at that person and say, man, would I hire this person? Has he been abusing my body or has he been taking care of my body? Has he been shepherding my spirit or has he been abusing my spirit? Just evaluate yourself. What kind of a person do I see in that mirror? And ask yourself if you need to uh, grow a bit. But the elders weren't just to take care of themselves. It also says in the text to take heed to all the flock. Uh, There are things in this next year I really want to improve in my shepherding. Now, I'm grateful for what God has done through me in the past uh, years but I also want to improve. I want to excel as a shepherd. And you fathers, I don't want you beating up on yourselves about your failures and your shepherding. If you just see, okay, there are some areas for growth, say, Lord, I want to grow. I want to grow this year. I don't need to worry about how much or how little I've grown in the past. I want to grow this year, and I'm committing myself uh, to doing that. Always be growing. Fourth test is to see if we are faithful to see the positive. Now, I want you to notice the description of the church in verse 28. He doesn't describe them as a pain in the neck or a pain in some other part of the anatomy. <laughs> he doesn't even describe them first and foremost as sinners, which is interesting because they were definitely sinners. He doesn't describe them as a vomitous mass of putrefying excrescence, <laughs> as uh, somebody in the Princess Bride movie said something to that effect. They're sinners in the church. There is no doubt about it. And yet they are sinners saved by grace, growing in grace, as uh, Brother Scott was uh, mentioning earlier. They're justified by God and they are treasured by God. I want you to look at his description in this verse. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now suddenly, this job of shepherding is an incredible honor, is it not? God's most treasured, his most highly valued possession, he has entrusted to overseers. How awesome can that be? (laughs) And this next year, I want to adjust my thinking, my attitudes toward sheep who are wandering. And I want to see them as being a treasured possession of Almighty God, a treasured possession. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Can you see the good in God's people? Or is the only thing you notice the parts that are not yet sanctified? Uh We have a tendency to focus on the negative, don't we? Uh, and can you see the good that is in God's people? If all you see is the sin, then here's what I would encourage you to do. Even that sin has been put under the blood of Christ. These are saints who are justified and it will help you as fathers and as mothers to see what could be in your children's lives simply uh, rather than simply the glaring uh, negative that may be uh, right there. The founder of IBM, Thomas Watson, once said, the way to succeed is to double your failure rate. That may seem like a strange thing to say, but he says the way to succeed is to double your failure rate. What he's saying is don't let your failures stop you. In fact, if you haven't had any failures, you haven't even been trying. If you haven't had any failures, you have not had any successes either, and you never will have a success. He's saying don't be afraid of failure. Failure is just part of the process of winning. Or as Thomas Edison said, there's only one good idea in 100, so I want to discover the 99 failures as quickly as possible. Now, his goal, of course, was to find the one way that really worked, but he saw all of these supposed failures as simply steps that were necessary to achieve that victory that he had in his mind. It's an issue of perspective. Now, one of the things that I always do when I'm shepherding the men in our uh, congregation, is I give them a one sheet right near the beginning of our shepherding. If you haven't gotten that, boy, have I failed. <laughs> but I give them this sheet. that's a summary of John Maxwell's book, Failing Forwards. Failing Forwards. And the reason I give it is because I know when I'm pointing out areas in which these men can do a better job of shepherding their families, They're going to right off the bat start thinking of themselves, oh, I'm such a failure. Look at all of the things that I haven't done. They're going to get discouraged. There's another great book, by the way, by a guy by the name of Chand. He's an Indian um, uh, leader who's just, I think, just a tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, uh, guy. And he's written a book called Failure, the Womb of Success. And it's just a whole bunch of stories of famous, successful people going through and showing all of the miserable failures that they have had in their lives and how God used those failures to make them successes. It's just a very, very interesting book. But anyway, I give these uh, to the people because I don't want them discouraged. If you realize that everyone fails on the way to victory and without some falls you will not gain the victory, it's going to give you a little bit of perspective. NBA coach Rick Pitino said, failure is good. It's fertilizer. Everything I've learned about coaching, I've learned from making mistakes. And so if instead of saying, "Ah, I am a failure, which should never be a word on your lips, if instead of saying that you say, oh, I guess there's a better way of doing this, you're going to have more patience with yourself and you're likely to have more patience with other people. If anyone had a right to be negative about the church of Jesus Christ, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Because we've seen in the book of Acts that Paul has been beat up by other believers over and over again. You can understand being beat up by people outside the church, but he's been tackled. He's taken fall after fall from these people, and yet Paul constantly saw good in the church, even the church of Corinth. Why? He saw the church as God's precious possession. He looked at the church through the lens of the cross. And I think this is one of the reasons why he had so much to praise Uh, these churches for. He knew God was already at work in the church and he who has begun a good work in them is going to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Again, it didn't stop him from correcting them. He did correct them. But when he looked at their mistakes, he looked at their uh, their failures and their sins, he looked at them through the lens of the cross. Now, just as an illustration, let me ask you this question. (laughs) Do you quit basketball simply because the statistics say, even in professional sports, that only 60% of the time does the ball make it through the hoop. Of course you don't. Just because there's 40% failure, you know? You don't look at that. So why do you focus upon the fact that 40% of the things my family does are a failure? Why do we focus on that? And I I can imagine immediately in some people's minds they think, yeah, it was only 40%, I'd be happy. It's more like, 10%, 10%, you know, of the time that we're actually having success. Well, did you realize that the statistics for oil well companies is that only 10% of their drills actually strike oil? Only 10%. Now, does that mean they focus on the 90% that don't? No, they're focusing on the riches they're getting out of that 10% that they have drilled. And so the issue really is... Um, an issue of perspective that we need to be looking at others uh, in in, in terms of the whole whole picture. I think John Maxwell is right when he said, we need to take successes and failures concerning ourselves much less seriously and take God much more seriously. We need to seed a risk-taking mindset. We need to constantly be planting seeds that will develop a mindset that is willing to take risks. Now, is it a risk to shepherd the church of Jesus Christ? And we have to say, of course it is. Is it a risk to be the kind of parent God has called you to be? Of course it is. But the rewards are worth it. You know, you look at the oil, the gushers you're going to get, you know, from that 10% uh, of what you have planted. And uh, uh, you have been trusted by God with incredibly precious possession. In 2009, here is one of the things that I want you to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to think more positively about your family, looking at the things God has wrought in them and that God will do in them, and look more positively at each other within the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the fifth test naturally flows from this. Are you faithful to protect the precious resource that God has given to you in your family? Or in the case of us elders, He's given to us in our families as well as in the church. Verse 29 says that there are dangers from outside. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, I would hope that none of you would ever throw your children to the wolves. No, you love them. You want to protect them. And yet, is this not exactly what many Christians unwittingly do? I don't think they're intentionally doing this, but unwittingly do when they send their six-year-old into the government schools to be trained by the wolves. I think those children are being savage. Now, people will say to me, oh, Phil, you've got such a negative message. Why, why, why can't you just lay off and let parents do whatever they want to do? And I think to myself, well, is it really a negative message to say God has given you a precious possession. You need to cherish that possession. God has put you into the position of pastor of your family, of teacher of your family, and what higher honor could you have than that? And is it not negative to be saying, it really doesn't matter if we send our kids to the wolves to be savaged? You know, I, I think that this is part of Paul's... Uh, warnings here. I think it's a a message that the church desperately needs. And if I love the church of Jesus Christ, I'm going to warn them about the wolves that attack the, 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 the sheep. Paul is basically saying, hey, shepherds, just giving you a heads up. I know you love your sheep. I know you treasure your sheep. I want you to know that out there are wolves that are bound and determined to brainwash and to take everything good that you have planted in your child's life. I want to warn you about it. I want you to take it seriously. Then he warns them equally about dangers from inside. Verse 30 says, Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He's saying shepherds need to also watch about sheep abusing sheep and also shepherds abusing sheep, and also sheep abusing themselves. That can happen as well. Uh, Let me read you from a a letter a professor in a seminary sent. This professor said, "...he was graduated from the finest four-star Christian college, the product of a distinguished evangelical church. He had a good personal grasp of the Scriptures. From a strong Christian family, he was a personable and handsome green shoot, the whole nine yards." Like many in his league, however, he was riding rather than building on his background. At seminary, he was acceptable, certainly not outstanding. He suffered from a severe case of the bloz, turning in papers that would make better kindling than academic projects. He generally frittered away his time. Toward the end of his four-year tour of divine duty, I had developed an excellent personal relationship, and I called him into my office. Bill, I'm disappointed in you. Really, Prof? Why? His eyes widened and blinked. Well, I could be wrong, but my evaluation of you is this. You are a ten-cylinder man operating on about three and comparing yourself with others who have only two. The atmosphere electrified. He flushed, stifled internal anger, and left. Apparently, he felt he had been misunderstood, and our friendship bond weakened. Upon reflection, he cooled to thinking temperature. Maybe Prof is right. Could it be that he's the only man who loves me enough to tell it like it is? He blew my cover. In time, our rapport was mended. Bill went on to become a military chaplain, serving with distinction and impact. One of the cherished letters in my file is from Bill, thanking me for caring enough to face him with my convictions. Counselors can often be cowards, not caring enough to confront. Wow. Mothers and fathers does that last sentence describe you? Counselors can often be cowards, not caring enough to confront. Are you willing to warn your sheep about danger? In John chapter 10, Jesus says that a shepherd who does not protect his sheep is a useless shepherd. He says the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. And so warning shows our care. The good shepherd of John chapter 10 lays down his life for his sheep. So here's my question, mothers and fathers. Do you care for the sheep God has entrusted to you? If you do, you need to tell them about the plague of pornography, which almost every family in America has been confronted with at some point or another. Don't think, oh, hopefully my son will escape that or my daughter will escape that. No, you've got to warn them of these dangers, otherwise they will not be adequately prepared. If you love your sheep you're going to warn them about the raging hormones that are going to be going through their bodies and say, look, I've gone through this time and here's here's some things I want to tell you and how you can gain the victory. And don't beat up on yourself when you you fall down, but here's some of the things that can help you as uh, God has helped me in the past. You need to be... Faithful shepherds. Don't let fear keep you from shepherding them in practical ways. If you're a good shepherd, you're going to warn your sheep about bad friends, financial dangers, doctrinal dangers, educational dangers, political dangers. And so in 2009, I want to be a more loving shepherd. And part of that loving shepherding means I'm going to try to be as, good as, 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 as uh, efficient, as best as I can... in in warning you. And I urge you fathers to do the same in 2009. I urge every one of you to, to grow. You know, sheep need to grow as well. Grow in your ability to receive this love from your shepherds. Now, the last test is faithful to be alert. Verse 31, it continues actually this theme of warnings, but it also adds another dimension there. It says, therefore, watch. Therefore, watch. Okay. Do I take precautions? Am I alert? Do I know what's going on around me? Do I know what's going on in my nation? Do I know what's happening to my family? He says, therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He took precautions. He didn't do it in a legalistic way. Okay. He did it with care, with love, with heart, with tears. As shepherds, we need to be alert, whether we're shepherding as elders or we're shepherding as fathers of families. Now again, I know exactly what Satan will tend to do uh, with, with people. Jesus already told us in the the, 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 the parable of, the, of the, the, the wheat and the sower. Some seed that sowed, as soon as it sowed, birds come and pick it up off the ground. And he says that's what Satan loves to do with his people. As soon as the word sowed, He uses various techniques to grab that word of the hearts, And here's one of the techniques that he uses. Uh, Satan will try to get you to throw out the sermon by saying, there's no way I could do this. This is just another way to fail. Why even try? Now, next time I plan, Lord willing, to spend an entire sermon on just verse 32 because that answers that objection. But I want to at least read it today because this is the context of grace that he gives here. It says, so then, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You think, I just can't do this alone. And God's answer is, you're not alone. And I want you to repeat after me this morning, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can you say that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not just the the word of man. That's the word of God. And God wants us to adjust our failing attitudes to be winning attitudes defined by His word. But He wants us to be saying, I am more than conqueror through Christ who loved me. Or as verse 32 here says, that He is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What an incredibly precious promise. You may have heard of Viktor Sarebryakov. He's the chairman of the Mensa Institute. Now, you know the Mensa Institute has um, a requirement, minimum IQ of 140. He had an IQ of 161. But when he was a teenager, 15 years old, his teacher told him that he was a dunce. There is no way he's going to finish school. He might as well just drop out. He took his advice. He hopped from job to job and... um, really thought of himself as a dunce. For 17 years, he acted upon that. Why? Because he believed a lie. He believed a lie that somebody had told about him. Then he took this IQ test. He saw his score and he said, well, maybe there's something more academically to me than I realized. And he started acting the part. And he he developed several businesses, had several patents on discoveries that he had made, read, uh, wrote several books Now, I don't have the IQ of Victor, and I'm not going to pretend to have his IQ. In fact, I don't even want to do the things he's wanting to do, but I want to live to my full potential. That's the point. And so I want to end by giving you an SQ test this morning. Uh, This is a spiritual quotient, and it reveals the levels of your spiritual resources. Okay, question one, who are you? And Satan might tempt you to be thinking in your mind, "Ah, I'm a failure. (laughs) And so many people think that way. Uh, I'm a failure spiritually. I'm never going to get forward. I want you to ignore the advice of that lousy teacher, Satan, that wants you to give up, say, you're a spiritual dunce. There's no point moving forward. And instead, I want you to say this, I am a child of a king. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. That's who I am. That's who I am. And if you keep telling yourself that, you keep thinking God's thoughts after him, you'll begin to live the part, just like Viktor Serebryakov uh, began to live the part of his IQ. Second question. How much capacity do you have to love the unlovable person that you're tempted to give up on? Now, Satan may tempt you to think, hey, I've tried. I've done everything I can. There's just nothing more that I can do uh, with this person. Instead, I want you to put down this answer to the quiz. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and He has already shed abroad in my heart the love of God, that supernatural love, and He's promised me if I need any other love to be able to love others, He will give me more for the asking, and so I can love my neighbor as myself, and I can love my enemies, and I can love my wife and my children, and I can love my husband. By God's grace, I can do that. I will not be overcome by evil but I will overcome evil with good. Now, if you can continue to believe that, God will begin working that love through you supernaturally because He says whatever is not of faith is sin, right? If we live by faith, we can move mountains. I will not be overcome by evil. When your wicked teacher Satan tries to tell you you're a spiritual dunce, ignore him. Don't let him be your teacher. Remind yourself of your spiritual resources and claim them. Third question, what is your capacity to discern truth from error and to be able to warn your family? Now, that was one of the points I went through, wasn't it? Shepherds are supposed to be able to warn their people. And immediately, in some minds, they're going to say, hey, I'm no Phil Kaiser. There's no way I could warn my kids of all of the dangers that are out there. I'm just going to let Phil Kaiser do that. No, I'm not the shepherd of your family. You are, right? And so God has promised to give you the resources that you need. Here's the genius answer you need to put down from Scripture. I am indwelt by the Spirit of Almighty God, who was promised in James, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I choose to believe that God will give me all the wisdom that I need to do the things that He has called me to do because He always pays for what He orders. Right? That's the genius answer. I will not doubt God's provision for me as a spiritual pastor. I'm not going to let... Phil Kaiser bailed me out. I'm going to claim these resources for my shepherd, my shepherding job. That's the genius answer. When you begin to believe that, you're going to start entering into that, just like Victor started living the part of his IQ. Fourth question. What is your faith? That last scripture that I just read, Satan will love to twist around. And what Satan will try to do is say, oh, wow, That's if you don't have faith, you're just not going to get anything from the Lord. Lord, give me some faith. That's going to seem so spiritual. You're praying, Lord, give me some faith. Here's the genius answer I want you to put down. I don't need more faith because Jesus has said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Matthew 17, verse 20. Now, this is not just positive thinking unfounded upon fact. There is humanistic positive thinking out there. No, this is believing the word of a God who cannot lie. Say with 1 John, everyone who was born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's the genius answer. 1 John says that um, uh, you already have an anointing from God and you know all things. You have an anointing from Him and you can discern Truth from error. You can do the things that God has called you to shepherd in. Now, I could keep on giving this quiz, but I think you get the point. We only have the faith to achieve what we have faith for. Uh, we can only achieve what we have faith for, and there's no reason why every one of you could not make great leaps forward in 2009. After all, you are indwelt by the God who created this universe. Think about that. Romans 8:11 says... The same Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead is at work in your mortal bodies. Isn't that mind-blowing? You think that Spirit could uh, work through you when you anoint your child who's sick with oil and you lay hands on that child? You think that that Spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead could heal that child? I think so. I think He could. We need to have faith. It's not just something the pastor does. You are shepherds of your flock. And God is the one who is indwelling you and at work within you. Um, you have His promise that if He is for you, who can be against you? And He is for you. Amen? Amen. Ephesians 1.3. You're probably sick and tired of my mentioning this, but I keep mentioning it because we, we, we tend to forget it. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're a millionaire. It's there for the asking. This is why Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in My name, He will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. John 16, verse 24. James says, You have not because you ask not. Now let me try to sum this all up. Shepherding the church of Jesus Christ is way too difficult a task to even be able to remotely accomplish apart from God's promises and His grace. But I choose to receive God's promises and His grace for shepherding the church in this next year. Shepherding your families is a task that is way too difficult for you to do apart from God's promises and His grace, and I challenge you to do the same, to receive from God grace And His promises, bank on it. He's a God who cannot lie. Loving your shepherds and loving each other the way God commands us to love each other is way too tall a task if it was not for His promises and His grace that He will be with you and enable you to do it. And so when God has given us these promises, it is not a presumption to make a New Year's resolution I'm going to be more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me in this next year. It's not a presumption to say, I'm going to grow in my shepherding in this next year. I'm going to grow in my ability to love the saints in this next year. Not that you're going to be perfect. You're going to grow. You're going to keep growing. By God's grace, you've got to do it. It is not presumption to make a New Year's resolution along those lines. Now, it's true, we live in an evil world, but as you've noticed, Paul did not ignore the evil that was in this world in this passage. Here's the point. We live and move and have our being in an even greater God. Amen? Let's not let our past failures get us down. J.M. Berry said, We're all failures, at least all the best of us are. <laughs> I like that. We're all failures, at least all the best of us are. His point was, if you're not a failure, you haven't even tried. And if you've never failed, you have not yet been a success. And you will never be a success if you're afraid of failure. So don't be afraid of failure in 2009 in your shepherding or in anything else that God has called you to do. Instead, commit yourself. Commit yourself to fail forwards from victory unto victory, from faith to faith, from glory to glory, from strength to strength, growing by the power of Almighty God. Are you with me for 2009? Okay, if you're with me, quote out loud once again that, that I can do all things, a verse with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. So quickly, our eyes are taken off of it, but I pray that our faith, our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Perfect that faith within us, Lord. Help us to grow, to go, from victory to victory, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.